Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It was Pauline who was the one who came up with the plan, and Juliet agreed to go along with it. The mother bends down to have a look at the stone, and uh, Pauline came up behind her and gave her a tremendous whack over the back of the head. Welcome to Crimes NZ. I'm Jesse Mulligan, and in this podcast. Talk with people connected in some way or another with New Zealand's most serious crimes. So let's go all the way back to 1954 and the murder of Honora Parker. It's arguably one of New Zealand's best-known historical crimes since Peter Jackson turned the events into the movie Heavenly Creatures. But in this episode of Crimes NZ, we'll hear from true crime author Peter Graham. Who revisited the case in his 2011 book titled "So Brilliantly Clever"? In 1954, two 14-year-old girls in Form 3A at Christchurch Girls High School became the closest of friends. So close did that friendship become, and so exclusive of all others, the headmistress, Miss Stewart, began to worry. And their names were Juliet Hume and Pauline Reaper. Pauline is now better known as Pauline Parker, as you've introduced her. And the reason for this is that after Pauline and Juliet murdered Pauline's mother, Honora Reaper, it was discovered that she was not lawfully married to her supposed husband Bert Reaper, and accordingly Pauline was illegitimate in the eyes of the law. The justice system and the and the press thereafter. Called her Pauline Parker, that being her mother's、yeah. maiden name. Okay. So it's、uh, important to understand that Pauline's mother was、uh, posthumously expelled from the the League of Decent Women when it was found out that、uh, she and her husband had not been married.、Oh, I didn't know that part of it.、Mm. The girls, why did they form such an attachment? On the surface of it, they came from pretty different social spheres. Well, they did, and perhaps I can talk about that first. They they were an unlikely pair, and their social backgrounds were、um, were very different. Juliet's family、uh, arrived in New Zealand in October 1948, a few years before, from England, and her father、uh, was Dr. Henry Hume, who had been appointed.、Um, Rector, which effectively is vice chancellor of Canterbury University College, he was、um, a brilliant mathematician and quantum physician who who had become a, a, a nuclear scientist. He was an extremely distinguished scientist, and he was married to Hilda Hume. And、uh, the Hume family lived in、uh, what was、uh, 
in Christchurch terms in the 1950s, a very grand house known as the Ilam Homestead. You, you, might, you might have seen that, Jesse. It's a, it's a house that's now in the grounds of um, Canterbury University uh-huh. in, uh, in Ilam Road, and it's used as a, as a staff club for, for the university. But wow. it's a very big house, and it's surrounded by the most beautiful gardens with a wonderful collection of, uh, of uh, azaleas. And that's where the Hume family lived, and it seemed to Pauline that they lived in a life of great glamour and sophistication, which I could only think was, was dazzling to her. Um, Hilda Hume was an interesting character, Juliet's mother. She was um, a founder member of the Marriage Guidance Council in Christchurch, and she, with a group of um, women who were her friends, used to appear regularly on the radio on 3YA, taking part in a, in a programme called Candid Comment, where they gave advice to people about their um, family problems and problems with their love life and sex life and so on. Huh. And uh, the more you know about uh, Hilda, the more you think that um, she was a very unlikely person to be um, dishing out this sort of advice because she certainly doesn't impress one for her sort of mothering skills. Huh. She had a, uh, a lover living in the, um, a flat at the back of the house. His name was Bill Perry, and he was described by one of Hilda's closest friends as one of her lovers, so we don't really know uh, more about who the others were, but, um, but anyway, she had an, a, an interesting um, life outside her marriage, it would seem. Um, the Reaper family, by way of contrast, her father, Bert Reaper, was the manager of a fish shop in Colombo Street, and her mother worked as a, as a secretary and the family home, which was a dilapidated house in Gloucester Street, was run as a boarding house. And the, the mother was always rather overworked and frazzled and, and extremely bad-tempered, it seems. And Pauline liked to spend as much time as she possibly could with her new friend, um, Juliet. And perhaps if I can just say a little bit about the, uh, the two girls themselves. In the course of my research, I spoke to quite a number of, um, of the former pupils in Form 3A who were classmates of these girls. So I mm. have, um, you know, a very accurate, I'm convinced, uh, portrait. And they talk about Juliet as being a willowy and graceful girl with uh, confidence and self-composure that set her apart from all the other girls. She was very clever, very knowledgeable, good at English, French, maths, and uh, as one of um, my informants said, we looked up to her and wanted to be her friend. But Juliet wasn't particularly interested and she, she seemed to be unattainable and she treated her classmates with a, with a bemused dismissiveness as if they were hardly to be taken uh, seriously. But then as the year went on, something completely unexpected happened when Juliet became friendly with a girl in the class called Pauline Reaper. She was always Pauline Reaper when she was at um, the girls' high school. Mm. She was a strange girl, something of a misfit. She liked to be called Paul, 
like George and Enid Blyton's mm -hmm. famous five, mm -hmm. who wanted to be a boy and was hot-tempered, brave and adventurous. She had curly black hair cut shorter than most girls. She was stockily built. And she had a large scar running down her right leg, which was the result of uh, a childhood illness, um, osteomyelitis, that uh, had her hospitalised for a couple of years. A very serious illness indeed it was. Uh, but her face bore a perpetually cross expression. She was described as bolshy. She hated discipline, seemed to crackle with anger, who spoke sarcastically to the teachers, some of which who seemed to be a little bit afraid of her. They were an unlikely pair to make friends, but and, and, and the basis for this, it seems, was that the, the two girls were the only two who were exempted from, from games. Juliet herself had health problems when she was young, uh, she had suffered from uh, pneumonia and bronchitis and always had a had a weak chest and so the two of them sat it out when everyone else was swimming and playing basketball and whatever else they did by way of sport so it gave them quite a lot of time I suppose sitting together um, more or less having to talk and they discovered that they had a, a mutual interest in books and poetry and uh, a sort of a fantasy world in particular. You and actually, in research for your book, sat down and watched a lot of the movies that had inspired their fantasies. Did you get um, anything out of that Yeah, project? Yeah, I, I think I'd, it helped me get a feel for them. I saw most of the movies that are mentioned in the diaries that the girls kept or otherwise came up. I read some of the books that they were reading, but I did try and uh, track them as closely as I could, but they liked adventurous films and in particular they admired actors and characters who were um, essentially evil or evil-looking or, mm. or played the part of villains. Can you take us to the crime then? How did the yep. girls get into the headspace that they would actually okay. murder Pauline's mother? The problem was that the, the household of the Humes was unravelling. Dr Hume and Mrs Hume uh, had decided they were going to get divorced. Dr Hume had resigned his position at the university. He was more or less forced to resign. And um, they were going to leave New Zealand and it was decided that um, Dr Hume was going to go a bit earlier with Juliet and was going to take her to stay in South Africa um, with an aunt. We've left out that in, in the year of the murders, which was 1954, Juliet had suffered a bout of tuberculosis and spent four and a half months, I think it was, in the, in the sanatorium in Christchurch. And so the idea was that she would be taken to South Africa and would help her recover, and then the family, or together or separately, would relocate to England. And um, the girls were mortified at the thought of being separated. They'd become intensely close. They had developed all sorts of... Um, aspects of a fantasy life. They'd invented their own religion. They had all sorts of crazy beliefs. They got wilder and wilder, really, and they started going shoplifting, and Pauline went out one night and tried to break into uh, the father's fish shop to um, steal some money from the safe that was wow. going to help her go to South Africa. 
And the girls came up with the idea that the only obstacle to Pauline going to South Africa with Juliet was her mother. Then they got to the point where uh, if we got rid of the mother, then uh, life would be wonderful. And, and that's a pretty big leap, isn't it? I mean, anyone who's, be, who's had anything to do with teenage girls... Yep. Or boys, for that matter, know can, know that they can be dramatic and uh, can have big plans. But the idea of actually turning that into yes. a murder, I mean, did you have difficulty getting understanding how they got into that headspace? I did, but we're helped because the girls had a diary and, um, well, the, the diary of Julia was destroyed by her mother before the police could get hold of it. But we do have most of uh, Pauline's diary, so that helps us understand. But, yeah, it's a bit, it is a big leap. And, in fact, you know, this kind of matricide is a very rare thing. As we say, I'm sure many teenage girls have thought about murdering their mothers, but um, it, it seldom gets to the point where it's, where it's acted upon. But there's one entry, just to give you the flavour, that in February 1954 in her diary she writes, Why could mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time, thousands. So why not mother and father too? Mm. And then she, a few days later, well, my anger against mother boiled up inside me as she is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. And so it goes on. So, but they were talking about this plan for some months before it became a real plan. And interestingly, it was Pauline who was the one who came up with the plan and Juliet agreed to go along with it. A lot of people have thought that um, Juliet really was the dominant personality and uh, she might have been at the beginning, but I think by the time of the murder, Pauline was definitely uh, an equal partner and she was the one who came up with the plan. And the plan was that they would persuade Pauline's mother to accompany them for a walk up in Victoria Park one sunny afternoon on the 22nd of June and and uh, this was a sort of a farewell for Juliet who was going to be leaving New Zealand in, in 11 days time um, but the plan was that uh, Juliet would take a, a little stone with her on the walk and in the course of the, the walk was up at, I don't know if you know Victoria Park but it involves taking the bus to the sign of the Takahi mm. and then a short walk up um, up a paved driveway and then there's a sort of a bush walk downhill called the East Bush Walk, I think. Anyway, the two girls and uh, Mrs Parker or Mrs Reaper, um, she had a cup of tea and scones and buns and so on and the two girls had soft drinks and then they set off on the walk and they walked about a quarter of a mile down this very solitary track. It was, a, you might say, it was a cleverly chosen spot by Pauline to find such a, a lonely and isolated place so close to the heart of Christchurch, five miles away from the Cathedral Square. And Juliet, according to the plan, dropped the stone on the path. Uh, Pauline was carrying a half brick in a stocking in her shoulder bag. And Juliet uh, called out, oh, look what's on the path. And, and the, the mother bends down to have a look at the stone. And uh, Pauline came up behind her and gave her a tremendous whack over the back of the head with the brick and the stocking. And then they... She didn't die quite the way people do in the, in the movies where you sort of hit them once and then they just collapse dead. 
Um, she was uh, not nearly as obliging as that, and they had to bash her and bash her and bash her and force her to the ground and then keep bashing her on the forehead, and it was a dreadful business. And, and she was fighting for her life, I think, for quite a quite some time before she eventually succumbed. Physically fighting too, by the look of her injuries. Physically fighting, absolutely. Yeah. And then there's one thing where on one of her hands the, uh, there's a little finger that was severed and only holding by a thread, you know, so she was obviously covering her head with that. And, and uh, Anyway, it was a terrible thing. And eventually the mother um, seemed to be dead and they weren't strong enough to push her over a bank as they were planning to do. They were hoping it was going to look like an accident and it was just, of course, there was absolutely no... And the two girls then went racing back up the hill to the kiosk where they'd been, saying, there's blood, we've, someone, we've got a terrible accident, her mother's dead, mother's dead. And and, and then the, the, the wife of the woman who was running the kiosk, who was the caretaker, rushed down hill with somebody and then they found the mother's body and they very quickly realised that she was dead and it certainly didn't look like an accident and the half brick and the stocking and the brick being covered in blood and hair and so on was lying there so it was um, pretty obviously looked like murder but the girls managed to wash and clean themselves up a bit and then they phoned Juliet's father Dr Hume who came up to the park and picked the two girls up and took them home before the police arrived or before a doctor arrived and so on. So they were, the two of them were back at Island Homestead um, washing and cleaning themselves up as best they could. Going to jump in and share some audio now. This is from yes. an RNZ feature called Mrs Parker from a few years ago and it's reporter Ruth Barron talking to Eric McElroy who was a police officer who attended the scene of the crime. Did you actually go to the murder scene? Uh, yes. What did you see? Uh, uh, well, it was a, a bit of a mess, really. Um, Wasn't something you'd normally see? Uh, no, no. Not yet what you'd expect to see. In what way? Uh, the injuries were such that... Uh, it was obvious that it was a savage murder. Mm. And now, thanks to our Tanga Sound and Vision, here's another excerpt. And this is Eric describing going to the Humes family home as part of the police investigation. When we pulled into the drive, my vivid memory of the, of the light shining out of this window upstairs and uh, the music coming out, which wasn't... Uh, sort of in keeping with what you'd expect from two people that had just committed a savage murder. What sort of music was it? Well, it would be, it was modern music in those days. So not really sort of soothing music? No. no. And what were the girls like? Did you see them? Yes. They appeared quite happy. Happy? Yeah. Uh, which, again, probably wasn't what you were expecting, really. No. no. Well, you'll be unsurprised to hear that the girls were arrested very quickly. And yeah. skipping ahead to the trial, uh, Peter Graham, what, what was their defence? 
a defence of insanity under Section 43 of the, of the Crimes Act. The main psychiatric witness was uh, an eminent young um, psychiatrist called uh, Reg Medlicott, and the defence that he came up with, if I can put it that way, was um, insanity based on uh, paranoia associated with folie à deux. So that the two uh, girls, they knew what they were doing was illegal, but uh, they weren't mentally capable of understanding right from wrong. In a nutshell, that's what the defence was. And it didn't and, work? Uh, well, it didn't work. There was a, a very heated argument about the defence, and it would be fair to say that the, the prosecutor, a man called Alan Brown, at the end of the day, demolished um, Medlicott. Medlicott later um, in his career became uh, a formidable witness, but at that time he was perhaps a little bit inexperienced in the witness box, and uh, it's, it would be fair to say that his, his theory was demolished, and the Crown was chiefly taking the line that these two girls were able to reason all the way through, they were able to mm. plan, uh, they planned everything they did, and that was not um, consistent with the way paranoics operated. And uh, generally, there was a, all at the end of the day, all they could they, the, the defence was forced to say that the two girls knew it was against the law to murder their mother, but they thought, according to their own private morality, uh, it was okay to do this. And um, as a matter of law, that didn't support the defence of insanity. Sometimes, in many cases, really, the law is operated leniently or has, or has been historically operated leniently, but this was not such a case. Most people didn't particularly, lawyers or defendants, want to be acquitted on the ground of insanity because it meant that you went away to an institution for an indeterminate period of time and, mm. and well, in the days of capital punishment it was quite, it was a useful defence because it kept you alive. But these two girls being only 16 at the time of their trial were not facing the death penalty. But in the end they were convicted of murder and they were sentenced to detention at the pleasure of, I can't remember who it was, the, not the Home Secretary, but the Minister of, Minister of Justice, I think. And there was a problem with how they were going to be detained because in, in those days, murders were rare anyway. In the 1950s, you, on average, you had about two murders a year. There were no facilities for young teenage girls, but anyway, and they wanted to separate them in imprisonment, really, as part of their punishment, I suppose. They received five years, which seems very lenient in today's terms. And just finally, Peter Graham, do you know of them ever showing any remorse? I, I do know what they've said about it, and I, I'm, I, at least I know what Juliet has said about it, and there's not anything like the sort of remorse that we might expect, no. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. There are plenty more episodes on the RNZ podcast page. You can also find them on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And if you're looking for something a bit different, check out the new season of Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower. 
It's a podcast about headspace and happiness, hosted by self-described depressed comedian James Nokise. And you can find me covering a range of curious and compelling stories on RNZ's Afternoons program each weekday on RNZ National. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.